As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, it is Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. Did you guys miss me as much as I have missed you? Things have been absolutely bonkers over here at Casa Nurse Mo. Um, lots of busy stuff happening. I thought when I went on summer break, things would chill out, and I would get way caught up with the podcast and the website. But life has a way of intervening and telling you that you are not the boss of it. So some things have come up, but overall, I feel like I'm sort of getting back on a regular schedule and I'm super excited to be finally recording another episode for you guys. So today we're going to be talking about DVT nursing intervention. So If you haven't started school yet, you might not know what a DVT is. You might have heard of it because there's some commercials on TV that talk about DVT uh, blood clots and pulmonary embolisms. It's an anticoagulant medication, one of those pharmaceutical commercial drugs, Uh, pharmaceutical commercial. Goodness, can't even talk. I'm so excited I can't even talk. One of those pharmaceutical commercials, period. Okay, deep breath. So what is a deep vein thrombosis? If you've never heard of it, you're going to be hearing about DVTs a lot in nursing school because it is a very common thing that can occur and a very common thing that you will try to prevent from happening. It will also be a component of most of your nursing care plans. So if you're nervous about care plans or you're struggling with care plans, pay close attention because we're going to talk about some key components that could go into a nursing care plan, especially for surgical patients. So first, a deep vein thrombosis is simply a blood clot that forms in those deep veins of the body. So most often this is in the legs, but just know that it can occur in the upper extremities as well. Most of the time, though, it is in the legs. So these blood clots can get dislodged and that can cause a devastating thing called a pulmonary embolism. So a couple of key terms I want you to know is thrombus and embolus and embolism. So a thrombus is that clot, okay? And then once a clot, a thrombus is dislodged and starts traveling, it's like on the move, then it becomes an embolus. And then when it lodges somewhere and wreaks havoc on the body, then it's an embolism. So you'll be hearing those terms a lot when you're talking about DVT and DVT prevention. So these, um, and it isn't just blood clots, guys. It can be air, air emboli. It could be um, fat emboli and even foreign body. So foreign body materials occur most often in patients who are IV drug abusers. Fat emboli occur, I believe most often, don't quote me on this, but semi-quote me on this, after uh, long bone fractures, like femur bone fractures. And then air emboli can occur 
one of the scariest things is that it can occur when you're removing a central line. So just as a quick aside, if you're removing your central line, like from the internal jugular, you want to make sure that you are pulling that at end expiration or having the patient hold their breath if they can follow commands. And then you make sure they're lying flat, maybe with their head even a little bit lower than their heart, you pull it according to your, your facility's protocol. But I'd be pretty surprised if your facility's protocol was not to have them lie flat and pull at end expiration. Then you cover it with an occlusive dressing. Anyway, but if you don't do that and they take a big breath in, air can enter into that space and cause an air embolus, which can also cause a lot of problems. So we're getting off track here. We're talking about DVT. So what they most often do is cause pulmonary embolisms, but we're going to learn how to treat prevent and spot them in this podcast episode. So first, let's talk about who is at risk for a deep vein thrombosis. Basically everybody. Okay, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but when you're looking at patients in the clinical setting who are sick, you will see that most patients do have some risk for a DVT. So when we're looking at those risk factors, you're going to hear something called Virchow's triad a lot. So this is a collection of three three different factors that could place that patient at risk for the development of a deep vein thrombosis. So the more risk factors they have, the greater their chance that they could develop a deep vein thrombosis. So these three components of Virchow's triad are one, altered vascular integrity, and we'll go through each of these in a bit. Two, immobility or venous stasis, the blood not moving around like it should, and three, any condition that causes the patient to be hypercoagulable, anything that makes their blood more clotty. Okay, I was using air quotes. Could you see me? Um, Let's talk first about altered vascular integrity. So this can come about for a variety of reasons. So inflammation, Remember from your physiology class that inflammation causes those blood vessels to get leaky, right? So you have altered vascular integrity. Also, any vascular injury. What do you think happens to vessels when we do surgery? They get injured. We cut into them. We cut through them. We sew them up. We do all kinds of things. And mechanical devices. So this could be vascular grafts. Uh, pick lines. Very common cause for an upper extremity DVT is a pick line and mechanical valves. So those orthopedic surgeries, especially the surgeries of the pelvis and the lower extremities, can typically place patients at higher risk. But note that any surgery patient is going to be at risk for a variety of reasons. So altered vascular integrity inflammation, vascular injury, and mechanical devices like grafts, pick lines, valves, things like that. The second part of that triad was venous stasis or immobility. So this occurs because patients aren't as active as they normally are when they're hospitalized. A lot of them are on bed rest. A lot of them just don't feel good or too weak or had a complex surgery, and they're just not getting up and moving around like they normally do. Also, hypoperfusion, shock states, heart failure can all contribute to venous stasis. So have a high index of suspicion with these patients as well. 
And then the third part of that triad was hypercoagulability. This is another one that puts that patient at risk for a deep vein thrombosis. So this is going to be any patient with a coagulopathy such as, oh, this could be like tissue factor abnormalities, thrombocytosis, their platelets are really high, or even someone who was taking an anticoagulant like heparin um, and then had to take a anticoagulant reversal agent, had to be administered that. So some conditions of cancer will predispose the patient to a hypercoagulable state, as can hormone replacement therapy. Smoking is another big one that affects blood clotting. So if you're smoking now, please try to quit. I know it's hard. I don't know because I haven't done it, but I know from hearing people talk about how hard it is. I know it's hard, but you can do it and it's going to be so good for you. I believe in you. Okay. So another one that's not really part of the triad because it has a lot of different factors that come into play, but obesity can predispose a patient to having a higher risk for a DVT. So there was this study done in 2012 that suggested that obese patients have more than twice the risk of developing a thrombosis. So that's a huge, huge risk. And the association, like I said, it's really complicated. The association between obesity and the factors that contribute to that DVT, there's numerous things. So if you look in the show notes or on the podcast, not the podcast, the blog post version of this episode, I link to a study that's really interesting, but it's way more than we have time to talk about here today. So I want you to think about this triad in a clinical setting. So let's say you have a patient, she's an obese female who's on hormone replacement therapy. She smokes. She had her hip replaced a few days ago. She's got an active infection and she is just not getting out of bed. She says no. So if you're thinking that patient is at high risk for a DVT, you are correct. So a lot of risk factors for this gal. She's obese. She is on hormone replacement therapy. She smokes. She had an orthopedic surgery. She has an infection, so her vessel walls are probably leaky with that inflammation, and she's not moving. So super, super, super high risk for a DVT. So now that we know who's at risk for DVT, let's talk about the signs and the symptoms. So one of the hallmark signs of a deep vein thrombosis is pain in the leg, especially in the calf, though a DVT can occur anywhere anywhere in the deep veins. Um, it could be in the arm, um, then pain would be in the affected arm. Um, again, pick lines, huge risk factor for that upper extremity DVT. So be very watchful of your patient who has a pick line. There's often swelling in that affected extremity. So if you look at their legs and like one cap is really swollen and one isn't, or one upper arm is really swollen and one isn't, be suspicious of a deep vein thrombosis. That extremity could also be red. It could also be warm to the touch. You may even be able to feel their veins. They may be uh, swollen, hard to the touch, very tender if you're able to palpate them. And then there's this thing called the Homan sign. And it's hilarious how much emphasis this gets in nursing school. I've never done it. It's not common practice where I work to test patients for DVT by trying to elicit a positive Hellman sign, but there's a very good chance it will be on your exams and 
something that your clinical instructor may talk to you about. So I want you to know what it is. So this is, it can be a little bit controversial and that's why not every place does it routinely. Some studies suggest that it has a low sensitivity and low specificity for DVT, while some practitioners even suggest that doing the movement to test for the Hellman sign could actually dislodge the thrombus leading to a pulmonary embolism. So since it might be on your exams, just know it is tested by dorsiflexion of the foot while bending the patient's knee. You like stand towards their feet and you bend their knee, pushing their leg in with dorsiflexion of the foot. And if it elicits a significant amount of pain, that's considered a positive Hellman sign. Okay, so now that we think our patient might have a DVT and we go to our healthcare practitioner colleagues, the MDs or the nurse practitioners, and we say, hey, I think Bob down in room 12 who had the hip done uh, yesterday might be might have a DVT. So they're going to do it. They're going to maybe order a few things to diagnose that. So the place where I work, the routine test is simply a, an ultrasound. So this is a pretty common way to diagnose a DVT. Um, you may see it ordered or called a venous duplex ultrasound. So when you'll see that, you'll know that they're looking at um, the veins via ultrasound. Um, They may also do a D-dimer blood test. This test is going to measure the byproducts that occur when clots degrade. So if the D-dimer is elevated, it could be positive for the presence of a clot. But know that a lot of other conditions can cause an elevated D-dimer. So again, it's not very specific for a DVT, but it is something that could be included in the overall diagnostic picture. Uh, You may also see something called a venography ordered. This is where contrast dye is injected into that vein and viewed on x-ray. And then they can look and see um, where that clot is because there's dye in there in that vein. And then CT or MRI. I've never seen CT or MRI ordered for a DVT diagnosis, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Maybe it's done for ones that are more difficult to spot. But just know that it is possible that CT or MRI may be used. So now that we know what it is, what the risk factors are, and how it might be diagnosed, how is it treated? So DVTs are treated basically with anticoagulants. So note that these anticoagulants are just going to keep the clot from getting larger. They're not going to dissolve the clot itself. Okay, so to dissolve the clot itself, you need a fibrinolytic, something like Altaplase or TPA. In my experience, patients with a DVT will be on either heparin or anoxaparin in the hospital and then most likely transition to an oral anticoagulant as an outpatient like warfarin, Pradaxa, Eliquis, something like that. I have seen patients go home on long-term anoxaparin, so know that treatment regimens can definitely vary. And again, it's not going to break up the clot. It's just going to keep it from getting larger and hopefully prevent other clots from developing. So if you're sending your patient home on warfarin, few things you need to know about warfarin. So it's going to take a few days for blood levels to become therapeutic. I guarantee you this will be an exam question, you guys, or something that will come up in clinical. So you'll have a patient who's getting heparin injections or Lovenox injections, 
and getting their warfarin dose on the same day. And you might think, what, what, what? Why are they on two anticoagulants? Isn't that overkill? No, it's because when warfarin is first started, it's going to take a few days for blood levels to get to that therapeutic range. So we call that like bridge therapy, right? They're going to bridge over onto the warfarin with a little bit of... Um, with their enoxaparin or their heparin. So that's why. And your patient will often say, well, I started warfarin yesterday. Why are you giving me my Levinox today? Well, it's because it's going to take a few days for the warfarin to get to that therapeutic level. So how do we know that the level is therapeutic? So the patient will have a blood test done regularly called the INR. And a normal INR is 1.0. It's a ratio. 1.0 is normal. But with warfarin, we want it to be a little bit higher so that they are more anticoagulated. So typically that range is 2.0 to 3.0, sometimes a little more narrow, like 2.5 to 3.0. When the INR is in this elevated range, but it's on purpose, we say that the INR is therapeutic because even though it's high, we did it through therapy. Make sense? So the patient's going to also have to keep an eye on their consumption of leafy greens. So this, another test question, you guys, leafy greens have a lot of vitamin K. The reversal for warfarin is vitamin K. So there's a some misinformation out there that patients can never have, like say, a spinach salad ever again or a green smoothie ever again. That is absolutely untrue. What they do need to do, though, is if they are a spinach salad person or a green smoothie person, they need to have the same amount of greens every single day so that as they're getting their INR tested, they're getting the same amount of vitamin K that they always do, and they can still achieve therapeutic levels. So some patients may just be like, Ugh, forget it, it's too hard to be super consistent with my spinach salads, I just won't have any. I personally think spinach is great, and that's what I would try to teach patients, but it's up to them, of course. But they don't have to avoid it altogether, they just have to be consistent with it. Again, that reversal agent for warfarin is vitamin K. It is given IV. Patients may also get clotting factors if they have an overdose of warfarin, which are found in things like fresh frozen plasma, prothrombin, I never can say this word, prothrombin complex concentrates, and uh, recombinant activated factor seven. So the main ones I would say are vitamin K and fresh frozen plasma that you're going to see the most often, most likely, but again, practices vary by um, provider and facility. So one of the reasons that patients will overdose or take too much warfarin is because Maybe they're not going to the clinic to get their INR tested regularly. Okay, so that's one reason. And then another reason is sometimes patients just don't understand that drugs have different names. And I know it seems so basic. And this is why education on their drugs at discharge is so important. So warfarin is also goes by Coumadin is the brand name, I believe. And a patient can have warfarin from one pharmacy Coumadin from another and think they're two different drugs and take them both. And then they come into the hospital and their INR is like 13 or 7 or some crazy high scary number and they're bleeding out of everything and you have to try to fix that. Okay, so that's pretty much what you need to know about warfarin. Those are like the highlights about that. Heparin, on the other hand, 
Um, can be given, oh, sorry, I lost my train of thought for a second. So heparin can be given sub-Q or as a continuous infusion. So you're going to follow a lab called the PTT, especially if your p- patient is on a continuous infusion of heparin. You're going to be drawing PTTs like every six hours and adjusting the heparin infusion um, as you go from there. You're going to watch for signs of bleeding. Always watch for signs of bleeding with any patient taking any anticoagulant. Something very important to know is that the patient should not get heparin if they've had a lumbar puncture recently or has an epidural catheter in place. So heparin with a lumbar puncture or an epidural catheter in place puts them at really giant risk for an epidural hematoma, which can lead to paralysis because of its pressure on the spinal cord. So you want to watch your patient's platelet levels as well. I would watch platelet levels on any patient getting an anticoagulant because if those are low and they're on an anticoagulant, if they're getting bleedy, they might get real bleedy, okay, because they're anticoagulated and they have no platelets. And then if your patient's going to get, um, uh, sorry, if your patient has low platelets, it's always good to double check with the MD whether that patient should still get their heparin dose that day. Never make an assumption. Always, always, always ask. Same for if they're going to go for a procedure later in the day. So um, anoxaparin has a lot of the same type of things to know about it as heparin. You know, it's given sub-Q. You're going to watch for signs of bleeding and all of that. Anoxaparin hangs around longer than heparin. So anoxaparin is given usually daily, sometimes twice daily, depends on the risk of the patient. But heparin's typically given like every eight hours. So heparin's going to clear faster. So if your patient's got surgery or a procedure later in the day, you want to definitely ask, regardless of which anticoagulant they're on, if they're on anoxaparin, most likely the practitioner will opt to hold that uh, dose prior. If they're on heparin, depending on what time the procedure is, they may say, go ahead and give it. By the time we do, go do the procedure, that heparin will be out of their system. So just always ask. Just always follow up and ask. And then Altaplase, which is that fibrinolytic that I talked about, this is the one that's going to dissolve a clot. So labs to follow are fibrinogen, the APTT, and the INR. You just want to really keep an eye on how bleedy, air quotes again, your patient is when they're on something like a fibrinolytic that is a clot-busting drug. You'll also watch for those platelets. Low platelets and combo with Altaplase or TPA can be really bad news for your patient. So think really, really high risk for bleeding. Again, with anybody on Altaplase, you're going to monitor for signs of bleeding and know that bleeding can occur in the brain. So it might not be visible bleeding like you might expect to see oozing around the IV site or blood in the urine or blood in the stool or blood around their gums. Bleeding can also occur internally and in the brain especially. So you want to monitor these patients for any neuro changes and make sure that they know to report headaches, blurred vision, any neurological concerns immediately. That I would do the same for any patient on a heparin drip as well. So if you're interested in Altaplase TPA administration, I did a whole podcast on that. So check through. I don't think it was that long ago, so it shouldn't be too far back, but it's a whole podcast about uh, giving TPA. 
So let's talk a little bit about the complications of a deep vein thrombosis. So we mentioned a little bit earlier that it could be a pulmonary embolism. So this is probably the biggest one we worry about. You know, that clot can dislodge. And again, it's going to go from being a thrombus to being an embolus and travel to the lungs and block vessels there. And that's where it becomes that pulmonary embolism, which you may also hear called just a PE. Patient had a PE. Okay. IVC filters are these things that are placed in the inferior vena cava and they technically are, they kind of like catch or filter out an embolus as it's traveling up from the legs before it gets to the lungs. So if your patient's one of those that has chronic DVT and they're going home and they're still at high risk or they still have the, the thrombus, they may get an IVC filter placed. Another complication is post-thrombotic syndrome. So these uh, clots, these thromboses, can damage the vessel wall and the vessel valve. So what happens here is that we end up with chronic venous insufficiency. So if you remember from your physiology class, that venous return, right, getting that blood back to the heart is not reliant on the pumping action of the heart. Like the heart uses its pumping action and it gets it down to the capillary bed and then the venous side, right, comes into play and a bunch of other factors are going to get that blood back to the heart and those are the movement of skeletal muscles, respiration, those valves working properly, and constriction of the the vessel wall, that smooth muscle in the vessel wall. So if the valves and the vessels aren't functioning properly, then the patient can get chronic venous insufficiency. So this patient can get a whole bunch of problems that are not fun for them at all, including intense swelling of the affected leg, you know, some pretty severe edema, dark pigmentation of the skin, dilated veins, and most importantly, ulcers called venous ulcers that are very, very difficult to treat, take a very long time and a very concentrated approach to get those to heal. Also, DVTs are expensive. So a study done in 2015 estimates that just the DVT itself can add approximately about $5,800 to $7,000 to your patient's hospital bill. That's without it causing any complications. So like a PE, for instance, or this post-thrombotic syndrome would add much, much more. So the main takeaway is we're going to do our part to make sure our patient doesn't get a DVT. We're going to do our very best, and here's how we're going to do it. So here are some things that you could put into your nursing care plan when you're writing your interventions for how you're going to help your patient prevent the development of a deep vein thrombosis. So one is simply early ambulation. One of the very best things you can do for your patient to prevent DVTs and pneumonia, by the way, is get those patients out of bed and walking around. Newsflash, patients, unless they're kids, kids always want to get up and move around unless they're really sick. But adults usually don't want to get up and walk because they're in pain, they're tired, some of them are lazy. Um, I was the worst patient. I was tired. I was in pain. I was lazy. I just felt like laying around and feeling sorry for myself. I was the worst patient after my appendectomy. I did not get up and walk the day of surgery. I ended up having to stay an extra day 
I wasn't a nurse or a nursing student at the time, so I didn't really think about it. I just thought, oh, I guess I'm staying another day. And it was because I didn't get up and walk. So raising my hand here on that one. So you really just want to work with your patients to get them ambulating. And one of the ways you can help do that is by getting their pain manageable prior to ambulation. Obviously, you don't want to give someone a whole ton of morphine and then think they're going to go for a walk because they're probably going to go night-night maybe for a little bit. But see what you can do to get their pain down to a manageable number prior to their ambulation. And then just one of the things to be aware of is you'll be shocked and really, I always was and am still, how quickly patients will lose their strength um, in the hospital. If they've been on bed rest for even just a day or so, they're going to be weak. So use walkers, use gate belts, use whatever assistive devices you need to get the patients moving and keep them safe and yourself safe. Now, if the patient can't walk, uh, maybe they've got some weight-bearing restrictions or they're really just too weak or whatever it is, they could still mobilize in bed or sitting up in a chair. They can do that step on the gas movement with their feet where they alternate dorsiflexion with plantar flexion, and that will help improve venous return. They'll also have these things called sequential compression devices or SCDs. We just call them SCUDs. Um, and those are those sleeves that wrap around the calves. There are some longer ones that go up higher, but mostly I just see the ones that go around the calves and they gently squeeze each leg one at a time to promote venous return when patients are in bed or immobile for any period of time. So sequentials will be on almost all of your patients when they're in bed. I call them massagers because I feel like it sells it a little better. Like people like the idea of getting a massage. And then anti-embolic stockings. These are called TED hose. I don't know why they're called TED hose. I'm sure somebody knows out there that's listening. But one thing you need to know about TED hose is that they're really, really hard to get on and they fit really snug. So you've got to get them on properly on the patient and note that if the top of it rolls down, this tight roll area can get really, t- really tight on the patient and cause a tourniquet-like effect. So make sure that they're on properly. There's no creases or folds in the fabric because they are so snug fitting. A crease or fold could lead to skin breakdown at that site. You're also going to administer anticoagulants as prescribed and encourage your patient to do deep breathing because remember that respiratory action can promote venous return. So there you go. That is essentially the quick breakdown of what is a deep vein thrombosis? Who's at risk? What are the signs? How might it be tested? How is it treated? A few little tidbits about some of the drugs you'll use, the complications that can occur, and how you are going to help prevent it. So let's talk a little bit of housekeeping stuff. I wanted to let you guys know that um, some of you are new students and you're going to be starting school soon and I'm so excited for you. Yay. You're probably a lot like I was anxious a little bit. Uh, What's the word? over prepared, (laughs) not over prepared, but I wanted to over prepare, right? Like nothing was too much if I thought it would give me a leg up. So what I did for you guys a few years back, maybe you've heard me talk about it is I wrote a book, which is basically like the stuff I would tell you if we were going to sit down and have lunch or a glass of wine and talk about nursing school. And I just needed to 
tell you the main things that you need to know to kind of calm your anxiety, calm your fears, let you know what to expect and some things to do to prepare. And so that book is called The Nursing School Thrive Guide. Actually, it's not the, it's just Nursing School Thrive Guide. And it is on Amazon. I believe it's also at barnesandnoble.com, but Amazon is where most people get it. And I just want to share with you this quick re- one of these reviews. So it has a, is a really high rating on Amazon. I'm just gonna, not going to lie. Really good. So I love reading the reviews because it tells me what people are liking about it. And even the reviews that have suggestions really help me because eventually at some point I'm going to write Nursing School Thrive Guide 2.0, probably after I get out of graduate school. But Here we go. What did this guy write or gal? I don't know who it is. It just says Amazon customer. So this person writes, I recently just got accepted into a nursing program. Congratulations. Way to go. This book and online website is fantastic. That was in all caps, by the way. I was very overwhelmed on what to expect, how to study and what supplies I need. This book simplifies everything and points you into the right direction. For me, the most useful thing that stand out is steps on how to study and be the most successful. I really recommend anyone who got accepted into the nursing program or pre-nursing students to read this. Yay. Thank you, Amazon customer. Appreciate that. And here, Megan writes, so I have been listening to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. Oh, hey, cool. Megan, are you listening now? This is Megan M. And you included a picture and you wrote your review at the end of June. So if this is you, hi, Megan. And thank you for leaving a review. It really helps. So Megan writes, so I have been listening to the Straight A Nursing Podcast and I have loved it. So I decided to buy her book. I am pre-nursing school. And the one thing that was holding me back was my anxiety about the unknown of nursing school and what it is like to actually have a nursing job. I have to say, after reading this book, I am much more confident and reassured. It gave me an idea of how to succeed in nursing school and what it is like when you're actually in the hospital setting. It took about an hour to read, which leads to my only complaint. I wish it was longer because I absolutely loved reading it. And Megan, that's why I'm going to do Nursing School Thrive Guide 2.0. But you are a fast reader. I have to say, you're a fast reader. You're a very bright girl. I can tell. And then let's see. One more. Amazon customer. Why don't people put their names? Okay, this book is full of helpful, albeit common sense tips. Despite the fact that there's nothing revolutionary about the book, (laughs) thanks, the simpleness and easy to follow writing was well worth the read. I tend to overthink things and this helped me focus and prepare for nursing school this fall. Okay, so not revolutionary guys, but still super helpful. (laughs) Um, Let's see, should we do another one? Oh, that's enough. You guys get the idea. Super helpful book that a lot of people on Amazon really like. I invite you to go read the Amazon reviews on that. And then the other thing I wanted to tell you about is that boot camp will launch this summer. So boot camp is an extension of our dosage calculations course. And it includes a whole host of topics, all the things that your nursing school professors wish you knew before school started, because they're honestly not going to have a ton of time to teach you some of these key concepts. And now that I'm in graduate school and see the burden of teaching that is on these professors as nursing school educators, there's even more of a need for my boot camp because they have so much content that they have to teach you about, like, for instance, specific disease processes or nursing fundamentals that these core underlying concepts may get overlooked. So this is things like clinical judgment, 
doing care plans, how to be amazing in clinicals, um, tackling NCLEX questions, what is a nursing diagnosis, um, thinking like a nurse, just like all these things that if I had known them, would have made my life so much easier. So that's why I created boot camp. It also includes a very extensive dosage calculations component, which can be done as a standalone course if you're only interested in dosage calculations. That's already available. But I just wanted to let you guys know that have been waiting for boot camp. It will be launching this summer. So you'll be able to do it before the fall semester starts. Yes. So that will be at you can go to just straightanursingstudent.com and link to it from there. And then the last thing I want to tell you guys about, so the planners, I'm getting so many emails. So I'm just going to talk about it here real quick. Uh, the pre-printed hardbound planners have sold out. We're not going to be doing printed ones for the future. I had kind of thought about not doing them for this time, but I was like, ah, okay, I'll do it. But you guys, my printing costs, shipping costs are just skyrocketing. So in order to keep costs down, I'm going to be selling it just as a digital file. You can print it at home yourself. I work with a place on well, I don't work with them, but I, a place that I recommended for a long time, they still are doing a really good job. They'll print it for you. This opens it up to if you just want to print it and put it in your ARC planner or in a three ring binder or whatever system works for you. It's much more flexible. It'll also allow us to make more versions. So there's a July start version. There'll be an August start version. I've got the list somewhere, but then there'll be um, like those seem like the fall starts that people want. And then I think there'll be like a January and a May. Cause I think some of the, like the accelerated programs might start in May. So there's just a little bit more of a frequent start time so that you can use it in the, in a time frame that makes the most sense for your program. So you can still get those at our Etsy shop, or if you only want to remember one web address, straightanursingstudent.com links to all of this stuff there. Okay. I've talked enough. I hope you guys have a great day. I am going to go get on the Peloton. I'm going to do it. I have not been great with my exercise, but I'm trying to be better. I also cut all my hair off today. So that's exciting. Maybe I'll put a picture up. Um, I got, um, I seriously, my hair was shoulder length and it is now in a pixie and it is super cute. I have to say, I'm very excited about that. I'm going to save so much time on my hair and I guess that's it. I really don't have much more to tell you. Just the things have been absolutely bonkers, but I'm really working hard to get back on a regular schedule. So I hope you're all doing well and enjoying your summer and doing all those fun things that'll help restore you for those of you that are on break so that when you get back to school, you are at your absolute best. Okay. Thanks so much, everyone. And we'll talk soon. This podcast is brought to you by straightanursingstudent.com. Copyright Mo Media. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health 
and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment.